In this week's episode of Cauldron Capsule, we'll be talking about the Boston Strangler as there is a new film coming out on March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. How lucky are we to be getting this? And Kira Knightley is in it. And if she's not your celebrity crush, I don't know who is. But I just wanted to do some digging on the background of Boston Strangler before the movie came out because I feel like whenever there's a serial killer documentary, TV show, movie, I'm always Googling things during the show watching it. And I don't want to do that. I want to know everything before I go into it. So that's what I'm doing. And if you're watching this before it comes out, look, look at you, prepared. Before I really get into it, I just wanted to quickly say my name is Kayla. I post here every week, twice a week actually. I post one video on Cauldron Convos, which is our podcast with my co-host Zenu, which is a guy in an alien mask or a girl or an alien, just an alien. Now let's talk about the overview of the Boston Strangler. The Boston Strangler was a murderer of 13 women in Boston during the early 1960s. Between June 14th, 1962 and January 4th, 1964, so just a little under two years, 13 single specifically women between the ages of 19 and 85 were murdered in the Boston area and most of them were actually sexually assaulted and strangled in their apartments leading to police to believe that one man was the perpetrator and that it was a serial killer. And in all the cases, there was no sign of forced entry into their apartments. So it was assumed that the woman let the Boston Strangler in. Either the Boston Strangler knew the woman or they pretended to be a maintenance man, some type of serviceman. Despite national media publicity after the first few murders, the murders did continue on. And this resulted in Boston residents to purchase new locks, deadbolts, and other forms of self-defense. Obviously, if there's a serial killer on the loose in your city, you are buying all of the self you know, safety measures that you can possibly take. But some woman even decided to move out of the Boston area just because there was a serial killer on the loose. They didn't catch him 13 women later. I mean, would you move? Comment down below. (laughs) Not funny, but I think I would, honestly. Now, the murders happened in several cities, including Boston, which complicated the jurisdictional oversight for prosecution. So although it was mostly in Boston, it was like the outskirts of Boston as well, other areas, suburbs outside. And Massachusetts Attorney General Edward W. Brooke helped coordinate the different police forces in their search investigation for the killer. And he actually had a parapsychologist, which if you don't know what a parapsychologist is or parapsychology is in general, it's the study of alleged psychic phenomena such as extrasensory perception, telepathy, clairvoyance, you know, psychics, um, whatever, and other paranormal claims, and they use them for investigative reasons. So the parapsychologist used specifically extrasensory perception, also kind of referred to as a sixth sense, to analyze the cases in which the parapsychologist Herkos claimed that a single person was responsible. So there was some debate. It wasn't multiple people because, you know, they were in such different age demographics, race demographics, and typically a serial killer will kind of specify on like young women that are white or, you know, elderly women that are Hispanic, whatever it may be. But because they didn't, people were a little bit skeptical of whether it was just one person. The parapsychologist said that it was just one single person. And obviously the decision that the parapsychologist made was very controversial, as you can imagine. You're, you know, you're a Boston resident, you're worried, you have daughters, you are a woman, whatever it may be. And you hear the attorney general and he highlights 
hire as a parapsychologist. And if you're someone that doesn't believe in the paranormal, hey, I understand why you'd be a little bit concerned that he's just like, okay, this parapsychologist said that it was just one person, then it's just one person. We have nothing to worry about until we catch the person. You know what I mean? The police were not convinced that all the murders were the actions of one person. So although this parapsychologist did, the police did not. But let's just go into the victims. Many of the victims were sexually assaulted and at least nine of them were strangled with their stockings specifically. The first was strangled with the belt of her bathrobe. And one of the victims was 85 years old, so pretty elderly and actually died of a heart attack after the murderer grabbed her. Two of the victims were also stabbed, so we have two people kind of thrown in the mix where they weren't strangled. So Boston Strangler was stabbing all of a sudden. That's why people were kind of perplexed with, you know, is it one person or not? The murders of two women were originally attributed to the Boston Strangler, but were later found to be unrelated. How was the Boston Strangler caught? On October 27th, 1964, a stranger entered a young woman's home posing as a detective. He tied the victim to her bed sexually assaulted her and suddenly left saying I'm sorry as he left and the woman gave such a great description of the man that the police identified DeSalvo as the attacker when his photo was published many women actually identified DeSalvo as the man who had assaulted them as well and they had a pretty good idea of who they were looking for because he was a previous rapist and burglar so you know he wasn't new to the uh, criminal game he previously would pretend to be a modeling scout with a measuring tape and knock on a woman's door telling them that he just saw them on the street and they were so beautiful and that he he works for a modeling agency and he just needs to measure them take their measurements real quickly then he can go back to the agency and get them booked up and that is why they referred to him as the measuring man at first but he was arrested in 1960 the green man he was also referred to as because he wore green work clothes when he would tie up and sexually assault his victims and he was actually released after the green man kind of phase of his life earlier on the same day DeSalvo pretended to have car trouble and he actually attempted to enter a home but the homeowner who later on was the Brockton police chief Richard Sprules became suspicious and actually fired a shotgun at DeSalvo. I wish it hit him. Do I? I feel like that's bad karma, but whatever. You know what I mean? And DeSalvo was actually not initially suspected of being involved with the strangling murders. After he was charged with rape, he gave a detailed confession of his activities as the Boston Strangler. No one asked. He just spilled the beans. He even confessed to his inmate, George Nasser, and Nasser reported the confession to his attorney, who also took on the defense of DeSalvo. He even gave details of the crimes that were originally withheld from the public, so they generally believed him that he was the Boston Strangler. DeSalvo got one detail right that one of the victims was actually wrong about. DeSalvo predicted a blue chair in the woman's living room. She stated it was brown. Photographic evidence actually proved that DeSalvo was correct. Because there was no physical evidence proving his confession, he was tried on charges for earlier crimes, unrelated crimes of robbery and sexual offenses. The lawyer brought up DeSalvo's confession to the murders as part of his client's history at the trial in order to assist in gaining a, quote, not guilty by reason of insanity verdict for the sexual offenses, but it was ruled as inadmissible by the judge. DeSalvo was sentenced to life in prison in 1967. In February of the same year, he managed to escape with two other inmates from Bridgewater State Hospital, which resulted in a full-scale manhunt, actually. After he escaped, a note was found on his bunk addressed to the super intended. In it, DeSalvo stated that he had escaped to focus attention on the conditions in the hospital and his own situation. 
oh, I'm so glad you're escaping your state of being in prison to uh, fix your own situation. How about the 13 women you've affected? Actually, more than 13. 13 were just the ones that you murdered and ruined their lives, plus all the family members, plus everyone that was related to them and all the things that they went through. But you have the audacity to claim that you wanted to focus attention on your own conditions and your own situation. Really? Bro, people are really delusional these days. I mean, in the 1960s, but these days too. He disguised himself as a U.S. Navy officer, but gave himself up the following day. Coward. That's all I have to say. You're a coward. You're a little scaredy cat. Anyway, whatever. I'm going to be haunted by the ghost of DeSalvo soon. After the escape, he was transferred to the maximum security Walpole State Prison. Six years after the transfer, he was found stabbed to death in the prison infirmary. His killer or killers were never identified. Don't you just love how that happens? Like, the sickest of the sick. The ones that you would think would be the most popular for other reasons, like in jail. Like, for example... Jeffrey Dahmer, like you would think that people would be like scared of him, bow down to him because he was the criminal of criminals. He was a serial killer. He was sick. He was twisted. But no, people like that get murdered even in jail, even with the most twisted criminals. People are still holding them accountable. It's it's really crazy. Let's go into the theories of who killed all these women and let's get into specifically the multiple killer theories that maybe it wasn't just DeSalvo, maybe it wasn't DeSalvo at all, but who was it? There were actually doubts as to whether DeSalvo was the Boston Strangler or not, partially because at the time of his confession, people who knew him personally did not believe that he was able to commit these crimes. Because the woman killed were from a variety of age and different ethnic groups and were murdered in multiple ways, people did not believe it was the work of a serial killer. In 1968, the medical director of Bridgewater State Hospital insisted that DeSalvo was not the Boston Strangler. He said the prisoner was a very clear, very smooth, compulsive confessor who desperately needs to be recognized. DeSalvo's attorney, Bailey, believed that his client was the killer and described the case in his book, The Defense Never Rests. Former FBI profiler Robert Ressler said, you're putting together so many different patterns regarding the Boston Strangler murders that it's inconceivable behaviorally that all these could fit one individual. John E. Douglas, the former FBI special agent who was one of the first criminal profilers, doubted that DeSalvo was the Boston Strangler as well. So the DNA evidence, what can we actually take from this? What can we pull together to be what's believable, what's real. Well, on July 11th, 2013, so closer to today than it was the actual murders, obviously, the Boston Police Department announced that they had found DNA evidence that linked DeSalvo to the murder of Mary Sullivan. DNA found at the scene was a, quote, near certain match to Y-DNA taken from a nephew of DeSalvo. Y-DNA is passed through the direct male lines with little change and can be used to link males with a common paternal line ancestor. So unless we was actually his dad, his grandpa or something. It was pointing to DeSalvo. But the court ordered the exhumation of DeSalvo's corpse to test the DNA. On July 19, 2013, Suffolk County District Attorney, the Massachusetts Attorney General, and Boston Police Commissioner announced the DNA test results proving that DeSalvo was the source of seminal fluid recovered at the Sullivan 1964 murder scene. I hope you guys liked this video. If you did, make sure to hit subscribe. And I'll see you guys next time here on Cauldron Capsules, baby. Thanks.